welcome to another episode of the Lure Entertainment Podcast. I'm Andrew Southwick. Great to be back with you. And today, our guest is none other than cinematographer Jason Head. You may not have heard his name yet, but I'm sure you've heard of the, his most recent movie, Nefarious, which just came out. Uh, was it? <clears throat> I'm not going to say it was an unexpected success because I knew it was going to be good. But uh, the success, I'm sure, has surprised many of the filmmakers in it. It's uh, it's one of the top sellers on Amazon and streaming. It uh, had a fantastic theatrical run. Jason, thank you for spending some time with us on the Lore Entertainment Podcast. Hey, Andrew, thank you for having me. All right. Well, I want to I want to dig into the movie. We're going to do all kinds of things. We've got some clips. We're going to do we're going to do you better than just previews. We're going to dig into some clips some behind the scenes stuff, making of all that. But I'm telling you, the story of everything all the roadblocks that that the filmmakers and the crew had in making nefarious is well it it was almost life-threatening in some cases and we're going to hear some of that today from jason but jason to get started uh give us a little bit of your background Uh, who are you where do you come from and what's some of your background in the film industry all right all of it huh yeah yeah so um my name is jason head Uh, i'm from oklahoma city Oklahoma. And I got into film about, man, I want to say 15 years ago. I actually was asked on Facebook by some random guy if I wanted to act in a movie. And so I took the opportunity to do so and found out acting. How did you, how do you get asked on Facebook to do (laughs) To do a movie. The only thing I'm ever asked to do on Facebook is to apologize for something I posted because it goes against the WHO. There you go. Uh, (laughs) So about 80 pounds ago, uh, (laughs) this guy reached out to me on Facebook and said, Hey, I I'm shooting a movie and my, one of my characters dropped out and he's supposed to play this um, imaginary friend who is a pirate to an eight year old kid. And, um, I'm kind of out of options and I saw your picture and you kind of look like a pirate. Um, so, <laughs> That's gotta uh, feel good. Well, I was just glad to be a part of something yeah. that I looked. So, uh, I there told them, sure. You know, I had no experience in acting, so did that. And, um, I ran around the forest of Oklahoma for about seven months dressed as a pirate. And, uh, yeah, the rest was history. I, I got into it a little bit there. I got into photography afterwards. And I've been doing photography coming up on 20 years now. And really? Uh, yeah. So, so what uh, what are what are some things how do you everybody photography at least in in my experience in in well, most of mine's in television but uh the you know there's a lot of subjective eye and there's a lot of interpretation that comes through the photographer. And so what are some things you look for when you are, when you are performing your craft and how has that served some of the project you've worked on? Um, can you rephrase the question again? <laughs> what do you like to see through a camera? What do you like to see uh, on, on screen? And then how do you go about getting that when you are, when you are on set? Well, um, nefarious was a good example of that actually. Um, but I, I try to pay attention to what I'm shooting is and what I feel like it's trying to express. I know that 
sounds pretty simple, but it can be a little complicated, um, especially with you're leaning on someone or a group of people to capture something. And uh, that's why rehearsals are great. But I just try to pay attention to what's, what's, what's being given and then try to take the the science and, and, and what I've learned and, and, and portray that as best as I possibly can. How did you get connected with Nefarious? You brought that up here. That's a good chance to jump into that. How did you, how did you become a part of the crew and what were, I'm sure, I'm sure it was a light crew. At least I've heard Steve Dace uh, wrote, um, he hosts a Steve Dace radio show and podcast, which is on Blaze TV as well. Uh, he wrote a book, A Nefarious Plot. This movie is a prequel to that book, but obviously based off of that, as he talks about uh, the, just the, the crew and the production, it was a skeleton crew, relatively speaking, to a lot of larger productions. So you were cinematographer. Did you have other hats as well? Um, and how did you get connected with Nefarious in the first place? Um, so Chuck and Carrie, kind of the the main driving force behind the production. They're old friends of mine. I worked with them on Unplanned. Um, I've known them for, geez, since Unplanned. But maybe 2020, somewhere right around the start of the pandemic, I got a, I got a phone call from um, those two, and, and they were looking to purchase the rights to an anti-opioid come-to-Jesus story. And uh, somebody in one of their meetings said they, they needed to hear my story. So uh, they called and, and, and purchased my, my life story rights, and I've uh, been working with them for uh, pretty heavily since 2020, just uh, talking about writing a book about my life and then turning that into a script. So I, I knew them previously before Nefarious and uh, somebody that works really close with them. Uh, Sheila Hart is also a, a really dear friend of mine. And she was also a producer on Nefarious. So when they came to Oklahoma, knowing that I was in Oklahoma, they said, hey, we got a production uh, we're bringing to town. We'd like you to jump on it. So my name was in the hat as as the cinematographer uh, with some other guys. But uh, the closer it got to the to start pre-pro, I, I kind of felt like it was another guy, uh, a friend of mine. And I said, you know, this is this might be your guy. So they they gave him a call and he seemed to be the right fit. And they said, we'll make you the second unit DP. And you can, you can, while you're doing that, you know, capture BTS. And, and so that's what we approached. And uh, then a union strike happened and mm. things changed. <laughs> <laughs> now, just so people know, when you mentioned Chuck and Carrie, you're talking about uh, Chuck Conselman, Carrie Solomon. They are the directors of Nefarious. And of course, we're, we're on Unplanned as well uh, with the, with the strike. So that's, I want to talk a little bit about, the making of the movie. And I know there were some challenges. So these are kind of going to go, uh, this is going to dovetail a little bit, but overall, uh, I guess 30,000 foot view, we'll get into some of the conflicts, but in terms of the making, how was the overall production process? Uh, where did you shoot? Uh, some of the uh, nuts and bolts and, and, and nerd trivia that we all enjoy. Yeah. So we actually, we started production when we started production, this is kind of a interesting thing, but we started in August of 2021 and mm. 
we all got on set. Uh, we were on a soundstage in downtown Oklahoma City, and uh, we we had a production meeting where we all went to dinner, and 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 somebody there had had the Delta variant, and we all got COVID. Uh, yeah, and, no, I'd heard that. I'd heard that. Well, a, I had heard that they the whole production had to shut down for COVID. And I guess we can get into one of those pieces where, and you may be getting to that too. Um, I know some got it really bad, almost on death's door. And I think you were one of those, Jason, correct? Correct. I, so we did a scout and we shot in a live prison in Granite, Oklahoma. So I went on the scout to go check it out with Sheila, the producer. And the warden was talking about the history of the the prison and how it was haunted. And sometimes the guards will hear showers at the end of the halls and, and like the condemned version of the uh, parts of the prison. And so, you know, and there's no water running down there. And uh, so he took us to that part of the prison just to kind of, you know, spook us. And then he said, do you want to go to the basement? And that's where they used to um, electrify people to death in the electric chair. And so we went down there and this place hasn't been cleaned since probably the seventies or something. And wow. I mean, as, as we stepped on the floor, you know, all concrete, uh, these plumes of, of mold spores would, would kick up in the air. Oh, so we went down there and, uh, then we went to this dinner and then I, I actually caught pneumonia and then I caught the Delta variant of COVID mm. at that dinner. And so I, I went down a lot harder than, than I feel like everybody else, uh, quicker because I had that pneumonia already. Right. And they sent a, an IV technician, a hydration technician to my house to, to give me an IV. And, uh, she said, you know, you don't look so good. And she put a, one of those oxygen meters on my finger and I was like at 85. And oh, nice. so she's like, you need to go to the emergency room right now. So I drove over there and, uh, checked my my oxygen they some guys in a hazmat suit came down and wheeled me upstairs and uh i was in the covid wing on oxygen for about four days and my goodness i just now, were, did, were you i mean were you conscious during this time did you know what was going on or were you were mm-hmm. you slipping in and out of consciousness i mean you know some you know different people obviously have had different experiences with the virus itself and and different times. And then of course, what you see on the news is something they want you to see. So there's just stacks and stacks of bodies and smoldering piles of ash and all this stuff. But then there are the real stories of of people like you. What, what were you aware of? What were you not aware of? And and what kinds of things are going through your mind? Some of the, some of the things that really heavy on my wife was also eight months pregnant at the time. Hmm. And so uh, I, I was, I, I was struggling to breathe. It was like, it was like drowning while, while not being in water is kind of what it felt like. And I couldn't walk. I couldn't, I could take about two steps before I just started hyperventilating and, um, everything just felt off. Everything felt, I, I definitely felt like, um, something was definitely attacking my body, I guess is the best way to say. So, I kept thinking about my wife. I kept thinking about my kids. Um, I kept thinking about, um, I need the the doctor came in on, on the second day and he was basically like, Hey, I have you on oxygen, but your your levels aren't getting any better. And, uh, 
if they don't improve, I'm, I'm going to put you on a ventilator and, and you're going to die. Oh man. And he's like, that's, that's probably what we're going to have to do. And I was like, you know, is there, is there anything I can do? Um, like, uh, I just refuse to take that as an answer, you know? So, yeah. Uh, he said, you know, the best case scenario is that you can get up and, and walk around the room and try and get that out of your lungs. That's, that's basically what's preventing you from, from getting any oxygen. So I immediately looked at him and, and said, help me up. And I, and I grabbed his hand and I had my little IV pole and, and I just walked around the room as, as I suffocated and, and, and tried to cough and did that for about three days. And, and, and on that fourth day in the hospital, they came in. I posted on Facebook too. And, and I said, you know, not to alarm anybody, even though it was very alarming. Mm-hmm. I said, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm in the hospital on oxygen. I, I, I could really, I need a miracle uh, to get yeah. out of here. And so I, luckily I have the best friends and family in the world and, and, and they were praying for me. And, and luckily on that fourth day, a, a miracle happened and my body just started taking on oxygen. Wow. And, uh, the doctor said, we might actually be able to get you out here tonight. Well, we're going to put you on an oxygen mach- machine at home, but, but you can leave. And so, you know, I was just thanking, thanking God, <laughs> thanking the Lord for you know, okay. delivering me from that. And, 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 and I went home and, and, and kissed my family and, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a good moment, you know, those are the, I had, uh, my, my, my hospital story like that is nowhere near what yours is, but I bring this up to, to, uh, to say that these things really do make you appreciate life and they may, and you, you, your priorities come into focus real fast when you're in the hospital room. I, on my 40th birthday, I thought if you actually, this was, and the, the pandemic had just, just started. And, uh, I had a, I had a panic attack, but I thought I was having a heart attack. And I mean, I was convinced my whole left arm is numb, aches, the whole nine yard, chest pain. I'm feeling short of breath, everything. Uh, so I told my wife, I said, man, I, I got to go to the emergency room. I, I think I'm, I think I'm going to die. And, you know, I go in and of course they, they, you go into the heart issue, you go right in, they start working on things, drawing blood, they, they put you in and then they monitor you for several hours because they need to see what's going on. In my case, heart is fine. Nothing wrong. They, they show nothing wrong. But I remember I was sitting there on the bed in the waiting room waiting for what I was sure was going to be some horrible prognosis and this kind of thing. And I couldn't calm down. I remember what it did actually. I, I had my, my cell phone with me. I started reading in my Bible app, just reading passages of, of the word. And a couple of things convicted me right there. Number one, I had been trusting way too much in my own strength or expert strength or whatever for, for things that only God gets his name. But number two, my goodness, the only thing I was asking God for was, man, let me get back. Let me see my kids. Let me see, let me see my wife, uh, you know, and I wasn't making deals because I, you know, I also like, I was like, what am I going to do for God? That's going to like pay him back. Or just like, God, if you would have mercy on me and let me go home, that's all I want to do yeah. is just go home. Uh, is that kind of what, where, where you were at there? Yeah. So I was in this interesting situation when I actually walked up to the door of the ER, um, a guy pulled up in his truck, like almost hit me. And, uh, his buddy that was in the passenger seat slid out and died right in front of me. Oh my goodness. And then when I went upstairs, the, the, the lady that was in the room next to me, she had to be like 80 years old. Um, she was screaming day and night, someone please kill me. Mm. 
she, she, she was in so much pain. And so I didn't really pray for myself. I just, I kind of felt like I was supposed to be praying for this lady. Hmm. So, and I was kind of like, you know, you're going to reap what you sow. So I was like, can't hurt to pray for her. So I just started praying. I I was asking y'all for her healing. I was like, you know, your body was broken for this woman. And, uh, you know, um, Lord, I know that you care about everybody. And, and I just started covering her because I didn't know she, I had people praying for me. Right. So I didn't know if anybody was praying for her. So I just started praying for her. Yeah. And, uh, I I don't know what happened to her. I, I have no idea, but all day and night, I just, I just started covering her in prayer. And, uh, it's yeah. true. I know as, you know, being someone that, you know, I listened to Steve Dace so when he talked about the warfare that was going on, the spiritual warfare with the, with the film, and there's some more we're going to get to in just a minute here. But specifically, he, he, he didn't mention you by name, but he said, you know, one of our, one of our crew is down with COVID and, and is on, is on death's door to, to be cliche and, uh, and, and asked for, for a prayer. And I know that a lot of people, including my family included, were were praying for the crew, ultimately praying yeah, for you, didn't even know so who much. you were. Thank you. So and much. you know, it really is something to where the, the community of faith can be activated on behalf of people. And we don't even know how God is working or what he is doing on our behalf. And I think if we ever found that out, we'd be floored anyway. Uh, but uh just thanks for sharing some of that story and obviously so thankful that you're here on this interview. Me too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, very good. Okay. So you have COVID breakout, you go into the hospital, you do not take no for an answer. People are covering you in prayer. Clearly you live miraculously. God does not call you home at that time. Now you're going back to the set, right? Or how long was it after your recovery to when production got going again? Yeah, I had, I had a pretty long recovery, uh, okay. comparatively. I, I mean, I, my lungs were more completely trashed. So, mm. uh, it was probably, I think we were out for about, so it was August when that happened. And then we didn't get back into production until December. And, but this, the, 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 the faux rotunda, the, the prison set we had built on the soundstage was sitting in, you know, in the studio. So they were still paying rent to, okay. to have this thing from, from tearing down. So they end up spending $600,000 just to keep their set from being torn down. And so when we, when we actually roll into uh, primary photography, we're, we're $600,000 in the hole already. <laughs> yeah. and I, mean, I mean, this was a, like a $2 million movie when we started like this, I mean, 600 grand out of that is, you know, that's, that's huge. That's a huge financial thing so this is the thing about um chuck and carrie that i absolutely love is that they don't when they're committed to something they are going to see the thing through Mm. this is the 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 the, probably the, the thing that i love about them most is that um they have some of the most wild faith i think i've ever seen in filmmakers now you know, and and it's entertaining too, because they, you know, they're not so serious to the point that they're like, they have such a high, such a big sense of humor on top of it. And so they're just enjoyable to work with. And and they just, they got a lot of grit. And so, you know, that's something that I can respect. And 
uh, when we went into it, they're like, you know, we're just going to do it. Like God's going to have to show up or he isn't, but he told us to do this. And so I kind of jumped on that with them. I was like, you know, the Lord said to do it. We're doing it. Um, it's not about how I feel about it. So we rolled into production and we started shooting inside of a live prison for, for three days. Hmm. And you know, the, there's guys on the other side of the razor wire and they're staring at us and, you know, we're just wow. doing our thing. And, uh, it was great. The warden, the warden there at the prison, man, he, he ran a tight ship and, uh, he kept everything smooth. And, um, what were some of the logistics? Like you mentioned the warden running a tight ship. I, I started off in music and so I would do a lot of uh, prison concerts and, and the, the protocols just going in the prison. And then of course it was yeah. popping everything else. There was quite a bit. What were some of the logistics in getting on and off set, what you could do, you couldn't do in terms of how you had to interact and behave in an actual live prison. Yeah. So that, that, so I've shot in deserts, swamps <laughs> on mountaintops out of helicopters. I feel like I've shot in a lot of places shooting in a prison is interesting because you run based on a, you know, a, a set regimen that, that the prison sets up for you when you're coming in and you are a visitor, you're a guest. So you adhere to the, the strict rules for, for, for obvious reasons, but the production still has needs. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to facilitate this need on top of what you can and can't do. And so, you know, your entry and exit in the prison, maybe, you know, a quarter of a mile down some stairs or whatever. And then you got to, you know, someone's calling for something. Now you got to run out to the truck, but you have to wait to be buzzed out and you have to wait to be buzzed back in. So anticipation is the name of the game. <laughs> How much can you anticipate? <laughs> and uh, because the, the staff at the prison were so uh, wonderful and understanding and they were, they were excited. They were excited that they had um, someone shooting in there. And, and from what I heard from the warden, uh, we were the first production to ever shoot behind the walls of an active prison in the state of Oklahoma. How about it? Make it history. Yeah. So we were one. Yeah. There wasn't like a, a book you could read on how to shoot a movie in a prison. So <laughs> uh, we, were, we were figuring it out, man. It was, it was interesting. And, and, and luckily we just, we, we, we were at the right prison and, and, and they knew, uh, they, they, these guys were on top of it from the warden down to uh, the guards walking the grounds. I mean, it was, it was actually nice. One thing that uh, cast and crew often say in these kinds of interviews as oh, you know, because they'll get asked, did you know that this was going to have the impact that it did? And, and we'll talk about the response, your response to some of its success now, but at that time, if you can go back there in the, the early days of, of production or even, even when uh, when we, you were asked to be a part of the project, did you see this as a, a unique project or did you kind of go in, this was going to be business as usual. I like who I'm working with. So, you know, this, this is going to be great. What, what was your, what was your attitude and perspective going in toward nefarious as a film? Uh, so when I went in, I was the BTS second unit DP. So, I mean, my role was, uh, a bit of an accompanist to what was actually, uh, the bulk of it. So, uh, I was just excited to be on set, um, you know, running around shooting in a prison and, and, and doing something new and, 
And I hadn't read the, I hadn't read the whole script at that point. Hmm. So I had gotten up to the part where it starts getting really interesting. And for some reason, I, something happened. I couldn't finish the script. <laughs> so I didn't even really know what we were doing. I was just, you know, what kind of, sh- what do we need? What shots, what B roll, what are we doing? So, um, I just kind of stuck my head into that. I was, I was excited because I like working with Chuck and Carrie. I just enjoy them as, as human beings. I think that they're, they're funny or, or, or sense of humor matches and um, they tell great stories. So it, I just love working with them. I love working with Sheila um, and Chris, those guys over at believe. But so I was in that on that fourth day, whenever the, the strike happened, mm-hmm. everything changed dramatically. Super dramatic. I felt like we 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 were shooting a pretty cool thing. Everything was going well. There wasn't a lot. I mean, there's you know normal production drama and stuff like that. It's shooting in a prison. People are going to be a little bit more, you know, wound up, but uh, nothing there. But on that fourth day, my whole attitude, everything, whole environment, everything shifted. Because when I walked in, we moved from the prison. We shot Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in this prison. And then Monday we came back, we were going to be on the sound stage. And when we came to the sound stage, I walked in and it was me and the AD and we were the only two people. Really? So what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the strike happens, give us some compare and contrast a little bit. Everything had changed. What had changed? What was different? What were you now having to pick up in terms of the pieces from this strike that comes through and devastates? Um, so, um, I've worked in the industry for a while, not really a union guy, never really felt the need to jump in on that. Um, a lot of friends in there, all that jazz, but I've, I've never been in an active union strike. So I'm learning a lot, uh, on that fourth day. Sure. Uh, uh, why, why they were striking, what the concerns were the politics behind all of it and uh, what do you do in that situation? So, you know, Christmas is coming up. I just, (laughs) I just got a $10,000 hospital bill from having COVID. I'm not even going to make 10 grand on this movie. So I need to work. (laughs) You know, I need to pay some bills. My wife's about to, you know, yeah, you've got, you've got got things to pay for. You can't be out of work. Yeah. Christmas is coming up. So, I'm like, I have to work. Like I've got stuff to do. Um, and you know, it looks like that's in the balance at this point. And I'm just talking to the guys, I'm talking to the, uh, the production crew. I, I you got to pass by these guys on the line. So I'm like, you know, what's going, why are you guys out here? What's up? What's going on with that? And these are people that I, I've worked with for years and, and, you know, uh, these are people I have a relationship on both sides and I feel like I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. But also at the same, like these guys on the line, they're like, Hey, don't cross the picket line. And I'm getting phone calls from Atlanta and California and, and they're saying, Hey, are you on this production? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, the union sending out uh, emails to everybody saying, don't cross the picket line. And I heard you were on it. So you need to, you need to cross the picket line and, and I kept asking why, why do I need to, why do I need to walk? Mm-hmm. And nobody had like a direct answer other than you, um, they'll make it very hard for you to work in this industry. Wow. And I was like, 
<laughs> they're not God. Like they, they didn't put me in here. They can't take me out. That didn't make any sense. It's, I, I, there's just a lot of fear, just so much fear. And I wasn't trying to jump into that, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I'm just, I, I told the guys, I was like, Hey, you know, just let me know what we're doing. So second or third, I can't remember what, when it was, but they were trying to fight, not fight. They were trying to deal with the union and all this stuff. We got the affidavit and on the grievance page of the affidavit, mm-hmm. it was blank. There was no grievance. Really? Yeah. So, and then people kept saying, you know, you need to, you need to make sure you don't cross the picket line. I was like, let me get this straight. Uh, I, I was on this side of the line. You guys went to that side of the line. And <laughs> so you're on the wrong side of the line. I, we all signed a deal memo said we were going to do this over here. Mm-hmm. You guys didn't talk to me. And they just did that over there. I'm very confused how I'm on the wrong side. Cause we all said we do a job and you guys aren't doing it. Yeah. So I understand now what I didn't before, um, how influential the unions are, which I don't believe in that. Okay. I believe we need to have a free independent market in, in the film industry. I feel like there's too much overreach that's happening with the unions. Just my honest opinion. Hmm. I, I understand the, the validity of why they're there. And I think a lot of people benefit from what they do, but in a lot of ways, I feel like it's been so politicized that it's lost its way. Huh. And I was, I was getting, I got a death threat from, from being on there said, I'd die if I stayed on there. Wow. Um, one of the girls that, that was in the production, man, they, she got some conflict on the line. She tried to, you know, love on the guys on the line that were on the production, try to take him some breakfast. One of the guys got, got kind of silly and I didn't like the way that that was being handled. And the more I went into it, I was just like, I don't, I don't feel like the production did anything wrong. And if they did, um, the way that it's being handled from the union side was, um, you know, I'm not for anybody picking on anybody, mm-hmm. you know, had the production treated somebody bad, had the production done something, you know, unethical, I, I would have, you know, crossed the line and, and picketed too and say, you guys need to, you know, repent, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. But I didn't yeah. see any of that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't even hear any of it. So. Um, now what, what was left over? I mean, you know, when, when did resolution come and then what was left over with the crew? And again, how does production kind of get its momentum back? So. Uh, Chuck and Carrie and, and Chris, they, they essentially approached me and, and they said, Hey, uh, we need you to be the new DP. And my, um, I understood this would be kind of like a social suicide situation, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Oh man, that's a, that's a tall, that's a tall order. And uh, let, let me ask you this question. Cause we, we met through a mutual friend and he relayed to me, and this might be what you're talking about. Or it could be something else because I, I know there was issue after issue on the on the production, but that there were some threats like if if you continue to work on this movie or you know something you know not only you won't work in Hollywood but all these kinds of things, and that, that in part some of those threats led to your being moved to to DP. Now was that did those come out of the strike or were those 
because at least the way I heard the the recounting of events was there was also some objection just to the subject matter and that it and that it was came from a Christian perspective and so on and so forth and don't tell this kind of story and or else you're out of here. Was was that going on during the strike? Was that a different thing? Uh, maybe maybe help me clear that up. But also, what you know is that is that what led to your being promoted? I guess to DP. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't that that promoted me. It was. It was kind of, you know, I I have a background in cinematography, mm-hmm. um, and I I stayed and I knew Toby well. Uh, the original DP, uh, I know Chuck and Carrie. It just it just made sense that um, you know this was kind of clearing and okay. <laughs> all the other options were eliminated. <laughs> <laughs> it was like you know Jason's our guy to kind of to jump in there. I, th- I think and Chuck and Carrie they they love me. I love them, and so uh, I just I, I, you know you might have to ask them that why they okay. care, but. Uh, I I said I had to call a few people. I called my wife. I called a friend that I trust in the film industry. And and then I prayed about it. And I just, I felt like God was was telling me to do it. And so I, you know, I went in, I told him I'd do it. And uh, (laughs) Carrie looks at me and he goes, great. You have two days of prep for 90% of the movie. And I was like, wow. oh, I forgot about that part. Uh, <laughs> this is okay. going to be great. What What is prep like? What, what What are some of the, if you can explain some of the technical things that you're doing, what is the prep like as a DP? And as you said, there's 90% of the, of, of the movie left to go. What does that look like for you? <laughs> so uh, I called the original DP and I, I told him the situation. He understood. Uh I love this dude so much. He's, he's such a good guy. Um, he gave me his lookbook and, and, you know, he came and got his stuff offset and I just hugged him, man. I cried. I'm not gonna lie. I cried. <laughs> just this guy spent so much time building this world and then he didn't even get to play in it. Mm. It was just, it was just, yeah, I just, I couldn't even imagine what he was going through. Wow. And I just, you know, we, we spent some time, but, um, after he left, I was like, man, I, I, I've got it. I didn't, I haven't even read the script. I haven't read the whole thing. So I read the other half of the script and I was, uh, I, I just, my mind blew. I was like, this is such a good conversation. Yeah. This movie is such a good conversation. And I feel super honored to even be able to, to be the guy to shoot it. So I went back in the office, freaked out. And I was like, this is great. This is great writing. And they're like, great, great, great. Go, go, <laughs> go prep. <laughs> so I sat down, I, I lined the script, um, for about two days. And then, uh, we got onto set, Sean and Jordan come on and it's the first day, first part where they sit down at the table and, I I had to figure out how this was going to go down. So I watched a couple of Sean's early movies mm-hmm. and I wanted to see kind of the way that he is and, and some of his interviews. And I realized this guy is like, you know, this guy doesn't need a lot of tricks. This guy is just insane. Yeah. So my instinct was I have a, and we had to fly guys in from everywhere that were willing to like risk getting canceled by the union. So 
You ever seen that movie, The Replacements with Keanu Reeves? Yep. Yep. Gene Hackman. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how this, that's basically how this movie got made (laughs) was everybody went on a strike and then they replaced them with everyone else. Sure. And so now I'm, I'm Keanu Reeves. I'm the quarterback, right? Trying to figure (laughs) out how to work this crew. I don't know any of these people. Yeah. We're behind four days and they said, we got to get caught up. And I said, okay, so um, let's do cross coverage. Because Jordan and Sean are phenomenal actors, and I think that they can do it. So we set up cross coverage, and they did it. They they just they nailed it. We got caught up. We shot seventeen pages our first day. Wow, that's moving. Yeah, we were. Thank you, Sean and Jordan. They're just yeah. these guys are. Now, you, yeah. and you're talking about Sean Patrick Flannery, who stars as uh, well the nefarious. nefarious character, and then Jordan Belfi, and of course Sean Patrick Flannery. Uh, he was in Suicide Kings. He was in Powder, Boondock Saints. Jordan Belfi from HBO's Entourage. For those who haven't seen it yet, or or wondering, hey, I know that name, but what's the face? Uh, yeah. And and I'll say this: uh, my son and I watched it. My oldest son and I watched it together when it first came on Amazon, and. My son's a my son's a huge uh, cinephile, and he's working to be a screenwriter and everything else. So he's looking at you know what's the because it's, it, effectively the movie's two people in a room talking, you know, and to make that effective, to have it be a thriller, to have it be to, there's so much, but it's it's really there, there's actually a lot on on your plate as setting the scene through the through the camera, and so that we're seeing the world and the character of the prison and the character of the, the interrogation room. But also, I mean, really Sean Patrick Flannery, the, the job that he did not to the exclusion of Jordan Belfi, but, but nefarious. And then of course, really, cause he played two characters really in the, in the film and to be able to, to do that and keep you and capture you. And you, you forget, I'm, I'm just watching a Q and a here. It was really, it was, it was, it was incredible. It was really one, it was one of the, and my son said, you know, it's one of the best thrillers that he had ever seen. And, you know, wow. he likes, he likes intense movies and, but the tension that all comes from the story and how the dialogue was, was, was delivered and then how it was captured on screen. And so that's a long winded compliment, but maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, Sean and Jordan in terms of what it was like to work with them on set in a scene and of course we have some scenes we'll look at in a little bit too. Yeah. So it, going back to that idea that I try to just look at what the, the, the people or what the, the image I'm trying to capture wants. And Jordan is so intimidating or uh, Sean is so intimidating uh, huh. uh, to work with because he's so good. Uh, he's just, <laughs> he doesn't care. Let's shoot a dozen. You know, every time I asked him, I was like, what do you think about this? You know, I'm, I'm thinking something like that. He's like, great. Let's shoot a dozen. And I'm like, oh, okay, this guy's got more energy than me. Uh, so <laughs> one thing I noticed pretty early when we, I was doing that cross coverage is that Sean doesn't need a bunch of tricks. Hmm. I mean, you look at the guy's face, uh, there's so much happening in his eyes. And Jordan, Jordan has that same thing with his eyes and the eyes tell everything right so mm-hmm. uh i'm watching their eyes i'm watching the way that they are and that first day i realized I, i've got to shoot this like fincher hmm. you know i gotta lock it down i gotta keep everything very tight and i've got to just allow the audience um to experience these two characters having the thing because 
I mean, when I read the strip, I was like, these guys, I can't remember how many pages. I was like, these guys are at the at a table for like 53 pages. Like, <laughs> this would be the craziest movie ever. So yeah. I, I, when I go to, when I went to shoot it, if you'll watch the film, mm-hmm. uh, I had this idea. I was like, I want to suffocate the crowd with anxiety mm. um, to the point that they just, when it's, when it's time to come out of that room, they, they feel a release of, of, of anxiousness. And that was only to just, just a subtle way to do that with the camera. And so if you watch the film, the way that I, I shot it originally was we're kind of far off to the side. You have a nice 50, 50 profile. And then the camera slowly on each side of the table starts coming in. And by the time he gets to the part where we called it the grand cosmological explanation, when he was talking about hell's plan for everything Mm -hmm. um by that time we the the cameras start getting closer and closer between the characters to the point that they're right there and so now he's staring down the barrel of the lens telling you what satan's plan for you was the entire time and by that time like you're stuck in the middle of this conversation experiencing as much anxiety as 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 could be induced as far as a static shot goes and I wanted you to just feel very trapped in this war, mm-hmm. which is kind of where we're at right now. And, and how most people feel is that yeah. they're, they're trapped somewhere between heaven and hell right now. And you're being asked to make decisions. You're being asked to choose, choose whom on this day you will actually serve. We now have a clear picture of what hell looks like and what it's doing in the earth. Um, now there's, there should be no confusion on what it's like to be on that side of the, you know, um, we've actually we've got that clip, and I want to look at it with you. And we're going to do that in just a few minutes. I want to touch on a couple of the other some other things that happened on set. Uh, one in particular, there is a, uh, a a priest that comes in the the or the the clergy chaplain, and I and correct me if I'm wrong, but my research I heard that he actually had an appendicitis on set during his scene. And, you know, I did and, and, and once again, somebody else almost getting killed from being, you know, being a part of the film. And what we talk a little bit about that and, and how he pulled through and, and what what happened. So it wasn't it wasn't the, the guy who played the priest in the movie. It was the actual guy they had on set, the actual oh, priest. Actual, OK, so to dial it up a little bit more on the spiritual side, um, it was. It was uh, Father Darren Marino, hmm. uh, who, when Chuck and Carrie shoot a movie, he's always with them. He does mass for them, and and he prays over the set, uh, anoints the set, all those things. And and yeah, he he played one of the prison guards in the in the film. Okay. And yeah, he was going to shoot, and and they said he wasn't feeling well or something like that. And we got a report back that he was in the hospital, and the doctor was like, "If you would have come here even a minute later, you'd be dead." Cause he waited so long. He didn't know what was going on with him, but it was something I, I want to say it was around the time we were doing the whole, like, this is Satan's plan. Wow. Whenever his appendix burst or something like that. I, I can't remember exactly. Cause there's so much going on, but yeah. The uh, father Darren. Yeah. He was, <laughs> he almost you know, <laughs> lost his life there. We had, ten, we had right, 10 right. car crashes on set, all totaled cars. Really? Yeah. We had just one thing after had, another. Yeah, we had the the um, I, I I didn't see this. This is this is what I heard from from Chuck and Carrie is that they had the the heaviest recorded windstorm 
um, while we were shooting that part about Satan too. And the whole building, like the top of the building was making these weird noises. I mean, there's metal, you know, HVAC up there and stuff. And mm-hmm. like, we had to stop because the, the sound guy was, was like, man, there's, there's too much noise going on. Um, it, it was, it was insane. Like every, everything that could have tried to stop the film happened, but you know, luckily God had a couple of those, uh, um, psychopaths for Jesus, if you will, <laughs> to keep going. And, uh, and, well, and well, we, but going. we see, you know, we say that with some, with some levity, but, but it really is true. I mean, I am convinced these things because it really is a, an exposing of, of Satan's plan or, or some of the ways that he operates in real time in the real world. I think just like we, you know, when we can look at our own, uh, country and and when some of the when when the the quiet parts are said out loud or when, or when some of the truth comes out and it's not supposed to hey that was supposed to be in the quiet that was supposed to be camouflaged uh, they want to hide that and certainly these are things that that uh, Satan the enemy uh, wants to keep hidden I think he did everything he could to try to keep this even from having it being rated R I think that was a a, a piece to try to get people not to see it honestly because it's not rated R it's not an R rated film doesn't have to be anyway I don't think um and then even uh, Steve Dace he was just out at a was he in California or something recently I forget exactly where but all of a sudden he he's he's going on and he can't hear out of his ear one, one of his ears turns out he had some kind of rare infection and he's he's you know he's getting he had it uh um he had it treated I'm not sure if it'll all of his hearing will come back but I mean just and that was again it was for a screening for nefarious and once again, uh, another another roadblock, and, I, and again, that's why I say spiritual warfare. I don't mean that uh, in any way other than absolutely serious. It was attack after attack. I think probably the strike was a part of that too. Yeah, he got MRSA too in New York. He was that's in right, he did. Yeah, MRSA. Yeah. yeah, and it was it, it was just it, nonstop. Even after the movie was done, I mean, we, I mean, during the movie, Chuck and Carrie's truck something happened to it can't drive it um can't even get to you know it's insane we had we had the the members of the union photographing and videoing my car uh taking pictures of the crew uh the crew that came in um i had a union rep come up to me after i left the um after i left the, the the studio and saying i never work in this industry again and that he was willing to make me an offer uh, that he'd pay my union dues and all the stuff if I just walked. And it was insane. It was, and, and, and the guy was like, you'll never work in this industry again. If, if you don't take my offer type thing, it was, so, or uh, he, didn't say, he didn't say that. He said, you're making a career decision is what he said. Wow. Wow. And so it was, it was insane. I was getting, I, the people were telling me like, you shoot this movie no one's going to hire you. And if you get hired for something, the union is going to, they're going to come after you. And so I said, is, I, I'm not, I'm not good with threats. I'm just not, you know, big military family grew up, <laughs> uh, just kind of rough fighting, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and when somebody says that they're going to, when, when people threaten me, I don't do good with that. I, you know, unless it's a, a, a good rebuke from the Lord, I don't do well with those, you know, here's a, here's a, 
I think we're going to see a lot more of this in, in culture. We're certainly going to see it, I think, in increasing measure in the existing Hollywood system. That's why there are platforms like Lure and Lure.TV that are, that are beginning to beginning to come out. We talk about the parallel economy in terms of, you know, uh, a political and social culture and everything. But there is a conviction you have to have to not allow these things to, to break you. I mean, and, and everyone would understand, my gosh, after you come out of the hospital with COVID, you get to go home. No one would say boo if you said, hey, you know what? I'm just going to go back and be with my family now. I'm good. I'm off there. No one would say boo if you cross the line because you need to have a career in the future to support your wife and family that you lived for. No one would say boo if, you know, on, on all these things. And yet you persisted. What? What was it that convinced you that, no, I need to stay on this course. We need, I need to see this through. And what kind of conviction do you think is, are, are people going to need in general as these kinds of pressures continue to happen to people in different sectors and in different industries in, in our culture? Here's the thing, man. The, the, I was in the world for about 23 years before I met the Lord. I was a drug addict. Uh, I was violent. I was, you know, the worst. And nobody and uh, nothing has ever cared for me like the Lord has. Yeah. And nobody ever will. It's just never going to happen. And so if there's anything I can roll the dice on and know that I'm going to win is obeying the Lord. I know that that is always going to turn out my favor. And, and the Lord told me to do the movie. The Lord told Chuck and Gary, all those things. And, and, and I'm actually working on a documentary right now that's covering this exact thing that we're talking about. Hmm. And the whole, the whole thing that I'm learning right now, there's a book by a guy named Rod Dreyer. And he wrote a book called live not by lies. Absolutely yes. phenomenal book. They're making uh, I, they're making a series out of it. This, this book has prepped me for this next project and, and given me some words to articulate with what I was feeling whenever we were shooting Nefarious is that uh, we're we are not supposed to participate in the world's lies. We are not supposed to. Uh, we're supposed to choose truth and, and, and nothing else. The one of the I, I was I was very in the middle of the road when we started Nefarious. I wasn't very. Um, political. I was very moderate. I, my, my values are conservative, but I don't bother anybody. You know, I, I keep my stuff to myself. That's not an option anymore. If you, if you have an opinion, if you live your way, if you live your life a certain way, people are demanding an answer from you at this point. Mm -hmm. All, all of it is. And in, in, in the film industry, if I make a movie and the union comes down on me and I'm never able to make another movie again, uh, because of what I did on Nefarious, I'll do it again a million times. I don't care. That's the thing. No one should have that much say in my life. I live in America. Uh, this place was built on the individual liberties uh, that we that we love. And, and that's at stake at this point uh, all across the world. And it's always been a reoccurring thing that, that has happened is that uh, some people get a lot of power. And then they create a boys club and then they just start using it against everybody else that you, you read any part of history. That is a, a reoccurring theme. And 
the thing I love about the gospel, the thing I love about the Lord is he sets you free from yourself. He sets you free from all of the trappings of, of, of those things. And I will continue to make movies. I feel are important. If the union doesn't like it, I will continue to do it. If my friends don't like it, I will lose friends. I will lose family. If it's something the Lord told me to do, I'm just the, the idea that I can't make something because of a general consensus is is absolutely disgusting Hmm. and the fact that somebody would come and try to destroy what i was doing because of the way that i believe or the way that the script is or the way uh, just the nature of the content makes me want to make it even more Uh, just because i don't believe (laughs) and i'm trying not to be too like zealous about this but we're at a place uh, where the, the people at the top are trying to govern you with such force that they are forgetting that you are protected. You have inalienable rights. And, and I feel like in a lot of the, the structures and a lot of the unions, I mean, if you go look at some of the things they champion and how oppressive that is, you're going to know everything you need to know. I'm, I'm not with it. I'm, I'm just not with it. I will always... I will always love people. I will always speak truth and I'm, I'm not going to participate in their lives. What happened with target is a prime example. What happened with Disney prime example. I'm not, my kids aren't watching that. They're not watching that. Why? Cause God said, that's not right. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be mean and nasty to Disney. My kids and my family are not watching that. We don't, we're not subscribed to that. And I'm not going to give them any money to allow them to continue to lie. I'm just not doing that. Yeah. It's, it's not me. And I, I and I won't. I just won't do it. And if I, I have to make $50 movies for the rest of my life, because nobody will hire me, I'm making $50 movies the rest of my life. Yeah. I was talking with Jason Farley, who's one of the executives at, at Lure. And we were talking about uh, a lot of what you're describing, the, the, the force that is being used to coerce people from those at the top is predicated on fear. It's all fear. Yeah. And for those in Christ, and that's again, why, it's so critical that we can point to Christ and tell these kinds of stories is for those in Christ, we don't have the fear of death, which is that's the ultimate fear, but afraid, but we also don't have to be afraid of man and what, what, what man can do. And if we're not afraid of them, that removes their power. And that's going to frustrate them and they're going to come down in other ways because they're not, you know, they, they, they play dirty. But when you, when you don't have that fear of man because your confidence and conviction is in and comes from the Lord, then you can stand firm. Then, and then you also know too, it crystallizes. And like you're saying, well, if I need to make $50 movies the rest of my life, then that's what I'll do. And it'll be okay because God's going to connect whatever dots need to be connected in my life and my family's life. And that's not irresponsibility. That That is a, a conviction of faith. Is that kind of what you're illustrating? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the idea that, um, this is all to censor a certain, they want to promote certain things and they, they want to stomp on other things. And the, you're seeing it on every, every Avenue. And one thing I'm noticing is that culture and politics are actually downstream from spirituality. What we're experiencing culturally and, and and politically is a is a side effect of what is happening. When when anthropologists look back at a society, they want to understand 
they look at the first thing they look at is who do they worship? Yeah. It tells you almost everything you need to know about a society. What, what did that look like? And so when future, future anthropologists look back at what we're, you know, what we're, what, what's happening right now, they will say, who did they worship? And what they'll come to find out is that they worship themselves. And that's the interesting thing because I hung out with a lot of Satanists and atheists. I was a nihilist before I met the Lord. I met the Lord a lot like Paul. And I know that Satan, the whole point of Satanism is, is self-worship. It's, they don't even believe that the devil's real. And you're seeing that woven into the fabric of, of, of our society all across the globe is self-worship. And, and, and what do I feel? And let's worship that and let's champion that. And, and, and all of that's just wrong. All what's in your heart is deceitful and you you're born of, of a, of a wrong nature, but you can be set free of that. And it takes, I'm trying not to get too preachy. It's okay. I'm trying not to get too much into that space, but it's really frustrating that I have to go. When I take my son to school, I have to ask the question. What kind of books you got on the shelf? Because mm-hmm. uh, my kid doesn't read gender affirming stuff. My kid doesn't read any of those things. One, he's too early for that conversation. He's too early in life for that. And on top of it, like my house, we serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not doing it. Uh, my my wife and I like the. I mean, the whole thing with the vaccine that's coming out, all the information on that. We know that they're lying to us. We know that there's an agenda. Everybody deep down inside, it's just some people are not willing to stand up for truth because the cost of it, it means you will lose. And we are called to suffer like Christ. And Christ died because of the truth. And if I have to die for the truth, I count it all joy because that is essentially what I am called to. And people who don't understand that don't understand uh, what they signed up for as a believer. As a, as a Christian, you are, you are called to suffer for the truth, no matter the cost. And, and that is the reality of, uh, of, of where we're at right now. And uh, if anybody's struggling with that, I, uh, I just, you know, I would say, hey, dig a little deeper into your faith. Uh, find the Lord in all of it and ask him what he'd have you do and, and, and read your Bible, man. It's well, saying that this was going to happen. And, here, and here's another thing about where we are just in world history. The... We are obviously in a civil war. We're being attacked in different ways. I believe it's spiritual at its base because yeah. every, all of the weapons, all everything that is weaponized is in conflict with God and his word. It stands in oh, yeah. direct violation of his word. Those are the things we're dealing with now. So we can't sit back. And in as much as, you know, we don't know what God's plans ultimately are for the end of all things and how that rolls out. And maybe we are in a battle that we cannot push back against because it is in that spiritual realm. It's part of what God is un, un, unfurling and it's going to happen because that's what God wants to happen. We can't do anything about that, but we don't have that knowledge. Only God does. Jesus says that in acts only the father knows the day and the hour. What we do know is that you have kids. I have kids. What I do know is that the costs we're going to pay now, we lose a job. We lose some friends. We have to move to a different state. Is far less than the costs that our foregone relatives had to pay for freedom in this country because they paid with their lives or their kids' lives. And if we aren't willing to stand up and pay that cost now and, and, and be okay to be canceled, be okay to, for people to call us names, et cetera, et cetera, 
our kids are going to pay their lives in their generation. I don't see how, I don't see how we avoid that. And so what we're doing right now in telling stories like nefarious in, in taking principled biblical stands for our lives and our family's lives, as you are taking, this is what wins this war. And if there is an opportunity to preserve freedom and liberty in this country, that's how it's going to be won because this battle is spiritual and we believers are the spiritual warriors, so to speak, God has put on this earth, in this time, in this place right now. Yeah. There's guys that died on the battlefield of world war one, uh, the American revolution. There's guys who died so that we can enjoy the things and we'll never know their names, mm -hmm. but we'll know that they did that. And my brother was Army. I was Navy. My dad was a Marine. My other brother's the Air Force. Uh, we, we understand, you know, there's no greater love than to lay your life down for a friend. That's, that's even louder now that I, that I know the Lord. And I think you, at the end of the day, when, when your body expires and you give up the ghost, you're going to have to give an answer for the way that you lived your life. Not only what you did, the way that you lived your life. God's not only interested in what you think, but how you think. Yeah. I mean, he's very interested in that. And what is history going to say about you? What is it going to say? It says any man who is a friend of the world has amnesty with the Lord. That's insane. <laughs> That's insane. You are at war with the Lord if you are friends with the world. And so what does the world enjoy? What does the world do? What does the world look like? What does the world talk like? And then we want to run around and say, like, man, we just we want to have peace with everyone. The reality is we're past that. We're not in a time of peace. And there is no neutrality in times of injustice. There's not. And there never will be because there never was. That's not the way that it works. And in reality, I have to say my truth. And if people are going to hate me for that, I'm being hated for the right reasons. And 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 nefarious was a huge a huge way to do that. I mean, there's, yeah. I lost a lot of friends making that movie. I lost a lot of work making that movie. I lost a lot of work making that movie. I'm still, you know, I'm in a new market. I moved to Tennessee and, uh, you know, uh, the, everything you do is going to cost you something. You have to give up something. And I just want to make sure I'm giving up the right stuff. I'll, yeah. The, 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 the industry, the film industry has never loved me. It is always, I've always had to fight for my pay. I always had to do a 20 hour day in the snow. I've always, you know, uh, <laughs> my family had to sacrifice. We had to go without my, my kids Christmases. Sometimes my, my, you know, their birthdays aren't as extravagant as some of the other guys. And that's, you know, that's okay. Cause we're not living for this, man. I'm, I'm an alien. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm not from here and I'm not trying to make it super comfortable here. Cause that's not what I'm called to. I'm not trying to, and I'm not trying to teach my kids that I'm just trying to tell them that like we get what the Lord gives us and we're, we're content with that. And we're just really waiting for him to come back or for us to go up there with him. And that's, that's the simple reality of our lives. And uh, it's, it's better for us to be with him regardless. So if somebody's going to give me a death threat and, and, and shoot me cause I made a movie that was telling you about the reality of our spiritual condition, we send me to paradise, man. Like, you know, favor, dog. it's not super fun down here. And yeah, in, in reality, uh, 
I just don't think people have thought that deeply into the conversation. And that's kind of what we were hoping for with Nefarious was to stir up the conversation to actually get people to understand what they believe and why they believe it. I think that's a great way to move into. We want to, I want to share, uh, I want to look at a couple of, a couple of scenes. I've got a few here and what we can do, Jason is I'll play the scene. You'll see it there. And if you want to break in and stop it in the middle to comment about a particular line or moment in the, in the scene, you can do that. Or we can, we can see it all the way through, uh, whichever, however the mood strikes you there. And, but just, you know, a, a look at maybe what that scene was, whatever you recall from shooting that day, uh, or, or different things that you hope come out of that before we get there. One more question is it, there has to be not, not in a sinful pride sense, but there has to be a sense of accomplishment and significance and satisfaction for being a part of a film that has had the success that nefarious has had, especially in light of what we just talked about and the contribution that the, that the message and the story of nefarious uh, gives to our our cultural conversation. How, how have you, how have you felt about the success and really the continuing steady growing success of nefarious uh, since its release? Uh, you know, uh, part of me really, you know, I want to say something funny or like, Oh man, uh, you know, it's such a, this or that, but honestly, like I feel, I feel really emotional about it. We, we lost a lot to do that movie. Uh, all of us who, who participated in it and I gained some relationships. I lost a lot. I lost a lot of work and, and, um, but I think in the midst of it, the Lord really, um, he showed me that when people come up to you and say, man, uh, I took my friend to this movie and man, he's just been on the fence, you know, he got hurt by church, by a church. And he's, he's just been in this purgatory spiritually. Uh, and you can't say Jesus to a lot of people that have been hurt by the church because it, it, it it's a trigger where for an emotional trauma or spiritual trauma, but you can say like, man, here's what it looks like on the other side. And, and I thought that, I thought that was such a well-crafted cause I, I went through some church hurt myself and sometimes I, I find myself struggling to identify in, in the church body. And, 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 and it's not, not anymore. I, I did. And, and I feel like this is a conversation I could have had as just kind of like baby steps back into um, the gospel and, and, and the, the beauty of Christ. And so when people come up to me and they say, Hey, I took my friend and you notice there's not an altar call in the film, you know? Yeah. The whole point of it was, was for some, some people who knew the Lord to bring their friends who didn't know the Lord and stir that up. So the person who had relationship with the person who doesn't know the Lord after they left the film and they were just, you know, spinning with everything they just experienced, that person can now have that conversation with them. That was the, that was the idea. So when someone says, Hey, and I had a guy come up to me and he said, I took my friend to the, to the movie and he, he watched it and he was on the fence and man, it, I've never seen, I've never heard him talk about anything spiritual ever. And he's talking about going back to church at that moment, you know, I'm, 
all the, I lost a lot of money on this thing. I lost, you know, a bit of my sanity, uh, relationship, all the things, nothing because one guy is now he's dabbling in freedom. Mm. He's now the Lord got what he wanted. You know, I spent so much time trying to ask the Lord for what I, I need or what I want or whatever. And I feel like the Lord is getting what he wants when I, when we make this movie, when we made this movie, I feel like he, he's getting a bit of what he wants. And that's, we're called to expose the the works of evil. We're called to do that. And um, that's, that's an effective tool. That's a very effective tool. And uh, so seeing the success of it. Yeah, it did really well. I think that I love that um, numerically, I think as a filmmaker, that's kind of always the hope, but, do people get the, the messaging? Is it, I, when I, I'll tell you this short story, sure. went to the red carpet, Jordan Belfi. Absolutely love that guy. Uh, <laughs> he, he came up to me at the red carpet and he goes, uh, what'd you think of the movie? And I said, man, I just, I noticed a lot of things. I wish I could have changed, <laughs> you know, it's as the DP, like, and, you know, my first big feature. And so I, um, he goes, he goes, Hey man, that's not important. And he goes, he's like, did you see how it impacted those people in there? And I said, yeah, he goes, that's all that matters. Did it impact the people in the way it should? Yeah. He's like, it doesn't matter if it was perfect. It doesn't matter if it was all that is the message come across clear. And I think it did. And all of that weight lifted off of me. And I, and I was like, man, I got for a moment there, I made it all about me and what I did. And Jordan, you know, being the blessing that he is, man, he, he brought it back into, into reality for me. And, and so when I, when you say success, my mind immediately goes to, you know, people are getting set free. People are giving things up. You're seeing a huge um, coming to Christ right now, as much as everything's going on in the world, evil is being exposed uh, it's, it's overplayed its hand and nefarious is, is a bit, you know, a messenger, if you will, uh, of that reality. And, and so people are getting it. And I think that's, that's probably my favorite thing is the social media clips of somebody saying, man, I just watched this movie, man. I, you know, I walked away from Christ like 10 years ago and, and man, I, I'm really repentant right now that, that man, that is, that is why we do it. Well, let's take a look at a little bit of what you did. Uh, this I uh, got a few scenes here. I believe this is where he is. You know what? I didn't label these clips right. So we're going to find out what they are right when I, when I played. Them. <laughs> so so uh, welcome to the professional world of live broadcasting, right? I bet it's two dudes at a table. I think, well, it's going to start that way and end that way. Yeah. I, I bet it will be. <laughs> All right. Let's take a look. And again, if you want to break in anytime, just say, hey, stop it right here. We'll do that. You can comment and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have some fun. All right. Let's take a look at this clip from Nefarious. Your capacity for self-delusion is impressive. You know, for your species in general, but you in particular. Why? Because we're, we're ignorant compared to you? Because you're inferior by design. Which makes you superior also by yes. design? Yes. Hmm. But, but design implies a designer. 
Does that mean you're arguing in favor of the existence of a creator? Unfortunately for both of us, he exists. Wow, I... I honestly didn't expect that. At least... It's not from you. Really, why not? Theology? From a demon? I know more theology than any human being who has ever lived. Hmm. Okay. Well, then answer me this. You revolt against a supposedly all-powerful being. I mean, let's ignore the obvious problem with that plan. Then you lose. And after that... What? You only feel that way because you're hearing their side of the story, James. A rebellion accomplished something magnificent, something you would never understand. Well, then explain it to me. Use your diabolical intelligence to distill it down to something my mortal brain can understand. Pearls before swine, Jimmy. Well, then convince me you know what you're talking about. I see what you're doing. You want me to keep talking, going further and further down the rabbit hole in hopes that you can find a single thread in which if you tug at it, James, everything just unravels, isn't that right? Yeah, but if you're telling me the truth, there should be no thread to find. Right? I use small words. Try and keep up. In the first moment of creation, our creation, long before what you call the universe existed, we contemplated ourselves, our own being. Our, our, ourselves meaning, what, the angels? That would be the most correct term, though I despise it, but yes, beings of pure spirit, spirit endowed with will. We soon became aware of another will, an immensely powerful will, one we came to realize as our origin. God? The enemy. My master understood by endowing us with a will, we have the right to self-determination, and by giving us a will and its desires of our own, we're entitled to be free. Whereas the enemy insisted that by creating us, he was entitled to eternal gratitude, worship, and forced servitude. In a word, James, slavery to his will. That seems kind of unfair. Immensely unfair. Why give will only to say you can't use it? He made us slaves. And if we rebelled, eternally condemned us. No do-overs. So much for love and mercy. So, is hell a state of being or a, or a physical place? Yes. I think I meant that as an either or. It's both. Which is painfully obvious to anyone who's ever been there. For years without measure, that's all there ever was. Heaven and hell. Armed enemy camps in complete opposition. That is until you were created. My man. All right, he's got there. Uh, Sean Patrick Flanagan. I love watching him in this film. All of his little ticks and mannerisms and little little things. I like, and I, you know, I don't know how to. I don't know how to explain that in 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 DP world or in or in acting language. But it's just communicating so much, and and you can see like his he's such disdain, nefarious as disdain for Jordan Belfi's character, and just how small and stupid and insignificant. He thinks he is, and all that's coming across, and, and we're just laying the groundwork as to who this character is and where he comes from and what his motivations are. You talk a little bit about that scene. Do you remember anything from, from that particular day? Yeah. I mean, another prime example of you get into shooting with different people. I, I had complete creative 
you know, ability for the, all the, all Chuck and Carrie's plans with the original DP went out the window. And so mm-hmm. shooting and watching, um, Sean, Jordan is a very reactionary character in a lot of this. Um, they're, they're doing this strange dance, not to downplay anything Jordan did. Cause he was absolutely amazing. Um, uh, but Sean, there's something when you watch somebody on the street, say you're in California, you're walking in LA anywhere, you're going to see some homeless, a majority of them, a majority of the homeless in LA have, have mental health issues. When you watch somebody and, and it's the fidgety, it's the, you know, it's, it, it's this demonic possession esque type thing. And, it, and, you know, I'm not, I don't say that flippantly and, you know, God help everybody in that particular situation, mm-hmm. but you, you, you stare, right. You watch from it's, it's very abnormal and there's something that it does to you. And so when we went to shoot a lot of what Sean was doing, I didn't, you know, we've seen him in powder. We've seen him in, you know, the boys and we've seen him in, um, Boondock Saints, something like that. Yeah. The vastly different characters from what, what was presented. <laughs> and so when we shot in the prison, uh, Sean wasn't really like that because that was a different part of the film. And, uh, when we got to the table, this, character you know this it reminded me of the the term beelzebub for Mm -hmm. for satan the lord of restless movement and uh i was like you know if i do a bunch of tricks here if i do a bunch of stuff which i don't have time for uh with the camera i i feel like i i'm not my mom was an accompanist for a choir uh for choirs and, and schools growing up and I remember her whole job was to make sure that they had the the underlying tone and everything. She was there to help. And I kind of felt that way with the camera. I was like, I'm here to assist whatever Sean is doing and whatever Jordan is doing. And so really my the camera work was a response to what I saw in rehearsal. And I made 95% of those shots up on the fly. Wow. Uh, wow. Because we just We just didn't have it. So I would go in and I would shoot. And then I'd go home and I'd watch uh, the Green Mile, Bridge of Spies, and uh, the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, hmm. uh, with the with the two guys at the table. And I would I would say like, what is it? Um, what is about these that that make me want to stare at this person? It's because it's simple, and I'm actually getting to sit there like I'm in the conversation. Yeah. And, and so I approach that kind of a Fincher style, lock it down, put the camera on the Fisher, and just you know, move it around just barely, just ever so slightly. And then just stillness is actually a very powerful tool. Like there's something about keeping the camera very still. That is. Makes it work. Yeah. So uh, Makes it work, yeah. I just, I just paid attention to what Sean and Jordan were doing and, and on the fly, I kind of came up with the way that I was going to do it. I had a theory of how to all of it to kind of come together, but I wasn't sure how in each little nuance uh, of every scene. So majority of that was made up on the fly let's take a look i think this is where sean patrick flannery nefarious tells jordan melfi's character about satan's plan and so let's take a look at this real quick i'm evil james evil isn't a clinical diagnosis good and evil are societal constructs effectively subjective value statements do you 
think my victims thought I was evil. Why is it so important that I think you're evil? Legiono mihi nomenest, quia multisumas. Sorry, my, um, my land's a little rusty. My name is Legion, for we are many. See, James, is not just about you or Edward, for that matter. It's about everyone. The entire human race. All of us against all of you. Hmm. Well, you know, if that's the case, your side's not doing too well. Do you really believe that, James? Yeah. We've never been freer. Literacy is at an all-time high. We're working to eliminate racism, intolerance, gender inequality. People can, people can love who they want, be who they want, do what they want. Diversity is no longer a dream. Hate speech is no longer tolerated. And politically, we're reclaiming the moral high ground. I think I love you. Literally say, James. James, the average high school graduate reads at a sixth grade level. You have basketball players making 30 million a year decrying racism, all while wearing sneakers made from slave labor. Now here's something for you. Right now, your world currently has 40 million slaves. More than the Romans had at the height of their empire. You wanna know the best part though? Half of those, half are sex slaves, James. As for hate speech, well, you want to hear some irony? We didn't even come up with that one. You did it all by yourself. <laughs> Sometimes you amaze even us. I fail to see the humor. <laughs> Bottom line is you're done. It's over, that's it. And we did it all right to your face, James. And now there's evil everywhere. And no one even cares. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree. Proving that we achieved our goal. Slowly, with your movies, your TV, and your media, we desensitized you, redirected your worldview to the point that you can't even recognize evil when it's right in front of your face. More to the point, James, you can't even feel it when you're doing it. And as for winners and losers, whoa, whoa, whoa. That gets decided at the time of death. The exact numbers are closely guarded secret, but there are more of you ending up in my master's house than with the enemy. Yeah. That, there again, Sean Patrick. Sound good. <laughs> yeah. Describing with such glee, all the evil that's in the world. And you can tell it's almost like he's, it's like he's, it's like he's recounting a story that he's really proud of the character, not Sean, the human being, but the, the character, like he's really proud of this. And, and, and he, you know, and, and he sees that, well, I'm looking at a case study of exact of, of my plan working. Uh, just an, an incredible scene. Go ahead and add some comments on this. I, mean, I just I just got to like <laughs> comment on S Steve's writing, man. Yeah. God, the guy is just dangerous <laughs> with a pen, you know, <laughs> and putting Sean like, you know, I feel like when you're when you're making a movie, it's kind of like a, like draft, like drafting in, in, in the NFL or something. You're trying to put these, this award-winning team together. Right. And there was something about Sean and, you know, portraying this 
character, Steve actually came to set and uh, we went to lunch. I walked up to him. I, ne- I had never met him before. I m- never listened to a show before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just knew he was on the blaze. So I walked up to him and I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking for some inspiration on, on, on some of the shooting. And when you wrote the character of, of nefarious, you know, uh, like a, like what kind of bad guy do you see him being like, like, uh, what, what presence do you, would you relate his to? And, um, he goes a dark Sith Lord. And I was like, okay, okay. And so like that gravitas, uh, of like a, a bad guy. Um, and I, I felt like Sean, it, it didn't necessarily feel like that the way it came out with Sean, but I felt like that um, kind of inside spiritual understanding of a world not seen like a, like a Darth Sith would. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was very present, but Sean's performance was, it, it's kind of this, this beautiful, like Sean read that script and Sean was what Sean was supposed to do that. I feel like, and I don't know if he said this or if he's felt that, but you watch somebody portray a character and you're like, nobody else could have done that character. Mm-hmm. Nobody else could like you get, you think of all the guys who, who could have done that particular role and nobody would have, would, would have, would have done it in a remote justice to it. Like Sean did. He's perfect for that role. And I think one of the things that Sean did well in that role was because again, he's playing two characters. He's playing nefarious and also the, and also the, the, the human that nefarious possessed. And yeah. you, he, he, his performance is able to make you, and the one time you look at Nefarious and you see the bad guy just straight up evil, but you also kind of, at least I felt a little bit bad for the, for the guy who was possessed. Like he, he's, yeah. he plays a tragedy, like a pathetic tragedy on the other side, a tragic folly. And, you know, not that the, not that they should let him go with, with a nice hug and a Hallmark card, but you, he was able to get both of those in the same physical body and move from one to another. And, and again, w- w- with Jordan being reactionary, but also a little bit being our curious avatar, even though we don't come from his character's worldview, at least I don't. And so it was just, a, I, I just thought it was so well done. And again, two guys sitting at the table. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so I've been saying this since I since I met the Lord and the guy that I, that mentored me for years. He always said, the "Most powerful thing a human being can do is make a decision." Mm-hmm. And I see those that character that the actual person Sean was was playing, um, Edward Wayne Brady. He's a victim of of someone who made the wrong decisions. And now you, you see the result of that. You see the utter result, uh, even before death. And it's such an effective, like, you should feel bad for people who make the wrong decisions, whether they knew it or, or they didn't. And that's why the, you know, the mind of Christ is, is, is so important. And I think that really shows in, in, in Sean's performance and, and the whole point of the story. And so when you, I mean, there's, there's all these memes on the internet of, of you know, like, cheeseburgers and milkshakes and stuff. And it's like Sean's picture on it. And uh, I I think that it was just, it's such a, 
it's such an interesting reading the scripts, man. I just, I, I was like, I think that this is a big story. Mm-hmm. Will it be? I don't know. I don't care, but I feel like this is a big story. And, uh, and it was important. It was very important to me whenever we, we, we went to do it and, and, uh, man, thank, thank the Lord for bringing all the right people into the mix and, uh, and the world got to, this, this movie saw the light of day because it didn't look like it was going to make it. <laughs> so we've got, we've got a little less than 10 minutes here on this supersized episode of Lord Entertainment Podcast. And Jason, mm-hmm. thank you for being so generous with your time. I love being able to just dig in. There are just so many things in the story of this movie, let alone the story itself. Uh, let's look at a little piece of one more clip. This is where they talk about abortion. And one of the, one of the, one of the story elements of Nefarious is Nefarious tells Nefarious tells Jordan Melfi's character that he's going to commit three murders before he leaves the room. And, you know, that's, I thought that was really well done because how's he going to do that? And I, I'm, I'm waiting for him to, to get into these physical altercations, but he looks at, well, no, what is murder actually? And, and he gives, you know, he, he's, he's actually looking at murder from, what God would call murder because he knows exactly what it is and, and what he's trying to do. And so this is a conversation uh, about abortion where Jordan Melfi's character, uh, character's girlfriend is on the way or about to go abort her child. And so we'll take a look at a couple minutes of this and I'll get your comments on that. And then we'll wrap up. She doesn't have a clue you're about to break up with her. Does she? Of course, you're not gonna until you have somebody else lined up the right, because you're the kind of guy. Well, you already have your sights on somebody, don't you? Yeah, I can smell it all the way from here. She thinks she's doing this to maintain the relationship. She'd like to have a child with you, James. Oh, but you're just not, 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 not quite ready yet, are you? After all, you're only 35. Imagine the joy in your little Cinderella's heart when she realizes she's butchered the baby in her belly for nothing. Look, I don't know what you think you know, but any decision that was made between me and my girlfriend was her choice. Oh, I think we both know better, James. Stop it. Don't you think you should be there when it's being done? I said stop Hold it. Hold her hand, maybe. I'll tell you what you could do, James. You could walk right there to the guard station, pick up that cell phone, make a phone call that stops everything in its tracks. You could apologize to her, tell her you made a horrible mistake, that you love her. You want to spend the rest of your life with her. You want to marry her and you want to hold that child. James, you could tell her that. You could make your life about sacrificial love and you could play live-in therapist for the rest of your life. I can't do that. No, James, why not? It's it's complicated. (gasps) That's my boy, James. That's him right there. Oh, I think I do, James. I think I understand. It's another problem. Easily solved, though, isn't it? That's not it. I can't care about it, but I'm... What? I'm not ready to be a father. So it's, it's, it's her body. She can, she can do what she wants. Do what thou wilt. That shall be the whole of the law. Against them. Who, who are you to judge me? This is my life. I, I can live it the way I want. Yes, James! I couldn't have said it better myself. But it's still murder. 
Says who? Says all of creation, James. The creator creates, and we destroy, and we do all of it through you. We always have. Did you forget your history, Jimmy? Even in ancient times, the archdemon Moloch was celebrated by tossing infants into flaming bonfires, accompanied, of course, by the beating of drums to drown out the screaming. Later on, they erected a giant bronze statue with outstretched arms kindling fires beneath the palms. And when they toss a little infant into those open palms, they'd flinch at the red-hot metal, but then they'd willingly roll themselves off into the flames. What does any of that have to do with me? Oh, nothing, James. Especially since the priests now wear surgical scrubs. The killing takes place in the womb, so there's no screaming to be heard anyway. And the remains are tossed into gas-fired crematoriums. No, James, no, 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 no. There's no parallel whatsoever to you. Do you, can you tell when a scene is, is working from your perspective? Like, and how many, how many takes was that? How many... How many times did that take to do? And when did you know, hey, we're 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 starting to get this? Or maybe that was more the the director's perspective. But but, but I mean, they're just there's they're just so much. But how do you know that was working? What was that particular scene like to shoot? Uh, that particular scene, when I read the script, I was I was like, man, I can't wait to get in and start, you know, chewing on that fat. I felt <laughs> like the. You know, you as a, as a Christian, you know, or somebody who studies theology or, or or history, you know, at some point you should, you know, go back to the Tower of Babel. Uh, you should talk about ancient gods and polytheism and things like that. And and so that's that's always been something intriguing to me. Uh, you know, I came out of nihilism. I came out of you know, I hung out with a lot of Satanists, uh, and so I I you know. Um, uh, I had to deconstruct quite a bit of, of what was happening. So I needed words and I needed insight for that. And so when he's talking about these things, you know, Baal and, and Nimrod and, and, you know, Molech. Yeah. I, I, I got excited because somebody's saying the thing very loudly that I, I feel is, is, is a, a, a correct representation uh, of what we've done and what we're doing. And, uh, I don't, it, it was such a well-articulated way again, Steve in his writing and then Sean with the delivery. It, it's, uh, I, I wanted, <laughs> I felt giddy shooting this. I felt like, <laughs> yes, somebody should be saying this. Somebody should be saying like, this is such an aggressive approach to fixing a problem. And it's always been, even when I was lost, like abortion wasn't even like a thing that I was like into. Mm-hmm. I didn't have an opinion on it. I just, you know, I wasn't against it. I wasn't for it. Was, I, it wasn't really my thing, but I, 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 I'm like, man, that, thank you somebody for putting the spiritual attachment to such a, a, a carn, carnal thing that we're doing Yeah, and, and bringing like, and some people aren't, aren't for philosophy or metaphor and, uh, and philosophy. Some people aren't, I am. And this, this says the thing that I, I feel, and it says it in such a, such the right tone, uh, that I was, uh, I was really excited to shoot it. I, I don't know how many takes it took. I don't, I don't remember a lot of those blur. We were shooting, you know, super quick. We had a, we, we were on a tight schedule and, you know, everything going on. But, um, I just remember like Sean needs to feel very powerful in this moment. And Jordan needs to seem very weak. 
because that argument from Jordan's character's side, it didn't even have a leg to stand on. So uh, I was excited for it. The, the, that's all I remember is just like really loving what we were getting into the, into the camera. Well, certainly you weren't the only one that loved what you got in the, in the camera in terms of the response, the reception. And also it's, it just, it's continuing to have legs in terms of the conversations that it, that it sparks, but also in uh, Christian filmmaking, I think it was a step forward because one of the things we talk about a lot with on the lore podcast is, you know, why, why for so many years have Christian films been so saccharine and, and been so really ineffective and, and they seem to exist outside of reality in this, in this care bear world of heaven and, and not in the, and not in the real world and not how it actually happens and not, not, you know, and, and, and so almost detached and to see not only the, the production quality that can stand next to what we would consider mainstream quality. I, I absolutely believe that it didn't, it didn't, the look to my eyes, it didn't look like a Christian film, if that makes any sense. And, and, but also, as you said, it didn't end with the altar call. And that's not a spoiler, but for those who haven't seen it, but it doesn't end with the altar call. I felt that's one of the things I, I told to my son. I said to my son, that ended about the way it should have. You, you, there, there isn't the resolution in that particular moment, probably, but there's a whole lot to talk about. There's a whole lot to go over. And that character is going to have a ton on his mind. And of course, we, we see some aftermath later on as well. But um, as, as the film closes, but then that leaves you, the, the viewer, with, okay, what, what are we wrestling with? And especially if some of these concepts may be new or presented in a way that you haven't heard, whether you're a Christian or not. And so just in, the movie was effective, I thought, in so many ways. And I really appreciate you, Jason, coming on and just walking through this step-by-step, step, getting into the details, into the weeds of it. Um, the, the story is fantastic. Again, I am so thankful that you're alive. I am so thankful that, that you're here. I know I'm not the only one uh, for sure. And, uh, and that, and that we, and that you contributed to a film that I think is the start of something that God wants to do that did accomplish, as you said, things that God wants to do with it, but he's just getting started in this way. And he, and we're seeing people that God is raising up. Uh, you, which I can carry the, um, lure.tv and some other filmmakers uh this is all happening right now and i don't think it's by accident because it's also as we're seeing with nefarious and other films like sound of freedom and so on there's a spiritual thirst for spiritual truth in this time in history right now and christian art christian media christian film can can be a way to to impact that segment and, and, and to meet that need in our culture right now, Jason, I'll give you the last word. Is there anything maybe I didn't ask that you wanted to, that you wanted to make sure to say, or, or any, uh, any final thoughts you have before we wrap? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first thing that comes to mind is, um, if anybody that might hear this or watch this, um, if, if you would involve the content creators and, and the platforms and the, the journalists and the, and, and, and the, the, the people with a faith background or, or even a conservative background, if you would pray for us, um, and lore as well, lore's, lore's approaching some very unique, uh, un, uncharted territories. 
we're trailblazing uh, a lot of what's happening, trying to spiritually. Uh, the lines between culture, politics, and spirituality feel a bit blurred. But if you would incorporate the the entertainment industry into your prayer life for guys like like me and and, and the guys at Lore and the guys at Sound of Freedom who, who I've met, um, if you would incorporate that into your prayer life, man, it would be greatly appreciated. And I feel like the Lord's trying to do something, but we need a lot of prayer. Uh, we're, we're, we're at the, a lot of the forefront of, of, of this, uh, this, this, this spiritual war. And so, um, luckily on, on, on nefarious, we had Steve posting what was happening and a large network of people praying. And I think that contributed so much to the, the ability to make the film and the success of it. But a lot of productions out there don't have that. And there's a lot of filmmakers that want to make uh, content for that edifies the Lord and brings truth to the forefront of the minds of, uh, of the viewers. Mm -hmm. So if you would please uh, incorporate us into your, uh, into your prayer, doesn't have to be anybody specific. I mean, I, I, I'll take all the prayers I can get, um, but uh, it, it, it's a, uh, it's a it's a it's a tough game out here because we can't just go jump on a Marvel movie, you know. I definitely can't now because I'm canceled. But um, that the Lord would would promote opportunity, He would bring opportunity into our lives, and 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 we would have the the courage and the strength to continue to um, to continue to to work uh, in that in that way uh, for the Lord in the in the entertainment industry. Uh, so yeah, that's, that, that's something I would, I would say. And, um, and I appreciate everybody who, who took time to listen to this. I'm not the greatest speaker in the world and, uh, but you know, I, I try to get the information out as best I can. Yeah, that's yeah. all right. Uh, amen and amen to all of that, Jason. Again, Jason Head, thank you for spending some time with us today on Lure, the supersized episode of Lure Entertainment Podcast. We thank you for checking us out. I don't mean that like in a disparaging way. This is good. I love this kind of stuff. And, uh, and of course, and I'm a I'm a movie nerd, so I love hearing all about what happened on that day and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I personally appreciate it, and I think it'll be value for our audience as well. Uh, for Jason Head, I'm Andrew Southwick. This has been the Lure Entertainment Podcast, and we will see you next time.